I don't know. I have a lot of friends who kind of ask me like, hey, you take me on tour or like, where can we, uh, how can I get my music out of San Diego? And there's no other simple way than just get on the road, book your tour. Oh, but I need a booking agent. Well, you're not going to have a booking agent. You need to just write to promoters and go go to Portland and play some hall with some punk bands and then meet people at the show. And then the next month when you can go up there, you can like make connections. Author and Punisher, the one-man band industrial doom band created by Tristan Schoen was named one of the most prolific acts in aggressive music by Noisy. Recently signed to Relapse Records, his new album Beastland is due for an October 2018 release. Tristan recently sat down with me and Mike to talk about how he got into building his own instruments, inspiration for his lyrics, the importance of a record label versus self-releasing, and why you should be touring to develop your fan base, and more. So without further ado, here's the podcast with Tristan of Author and Punisher. Hi, this is Mike Peasley, and uh, I'd like to welcome to uh, another Sound Art Podcast. We're here with Author and Punisher, and we're going to talk about well, a little bit of everything, uh, about his music and about his brilliant instruments and uh just kind of generally his philosophy it's 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 kind of fascinating music so it's something that is definitely um worth a deep dive into tell us a little bit about author and punisher well author and punisher started out as just like kind of a one-man doom metal project i you know industrial doom i guess i had a i would play guitar sing along with a drum machine and brought these big monstrous speakers with me and it was very slow and um i had a lot of program beats and program synth and i was in art school at that, that time so it was uh i was experimenting with like fun videos and building my own speakers but then it just kind of i was building i'm a mechanical engineer so i started building these kind of robotic sculpture and things like that uh, as a part of my degree and I just sort of combined all music, art, and engineering and started designing these like elaborate or just kind of uh, industrial electromechanical sound controllers for software. Why? 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 Yeah. Because basically as a one-person band, you know, you're playing guitar along with a sequence. And that sequence can just kind of... Uh, it doesn't sound live. You know, you basically, I'm sure you've seen a lot of bands do this. They just press play, sequence runs, they play guitar along with it. It's very, it doesn't have that thing that makes it feel live, that improvisational drag or syncopation. Yeah. yeah. I want it to do it live. But there's something, there's something different about the hardware you use. I, I mean, it's really hard to quite describe it if, unless, you know, people listening go take a look at some of these these machines um it doesn't it, they're not just musical controllers there there's there's an art to it that convey it it it's so perfectly meshed with the audio that you couldn't imagine it being produced in any other way like when you see it it's like for this is the first time i think i've ever seen industrial music uh that feels totally in like meshed with the where the visual and the sound are fully formed. Yeah, I mean that, that that's and you know, to tell you the truth, uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say it's um, it wasn't that intentional. I mean, I'm a I'm a fan of heavier industrial. I don't like a lot of EBM or I don't like really much of where industrial went. Um, you know, post Robin Gristle, Godflesh, Ministry. You know, went in this direction that basically became like hot topic, and you well, know, but but it kind of it's almost like it pulled from the earlier side of industrial and made that the centerpiece. So that's what like, I mean. I mean, the, the heavier kind of more visceral um, kind of industrial is really what I what I like. I mean, I also like death metal, like doom metal, but just the combination of that and actually being a mechanical engineer who really uh, I I like working with those components that, that I work with. 
Yeah, I mean, for those who kind of know the genre, I'd almost describe you more. It's like, uh, like if you took Ministry and fucking crystallized it, but then took all the. I, I don't want to say this in a bad way, but took the joke out of it. It's yeah. it's it feels pure, and the lyrics are much more prose and poetry than I think I've seen in industrial in a long time. And it's not just this sort of, I hate myself. Um, dad is, all right, I'm mad at my dad kind of sense. <laughs> it, it, it feels like it's trying to make a bigger statement. I don't want to over sort of sell it, but as somebody who kind of grew up in industrial and sort of worked through it and like, you, I think you really nailed it in a way, and and like you said, it doesn't sound intentional in that you decided I'm gonna be the best, and I'm, I'm I'm gonna be like the revival of fucking Throbbing Gristle or something. It sounds like you've got something to say. Yeah, as I said, it was an organic process, and and I I'm not a I'm not like that cynical of a person or, or angsty. You know, I had a good upbringing. My my dad worked in kind of the robotics industry as a plant manager, making robotics components. My mom was a computer teacher. And I grew up with tech and I, I kind of embraced that, that world and started working in that industry, but then got frustrated with it being a, uh, I just got frustrated with the lifestyle. I was playing in bands this whole time. I got frustrated with the lifestyle, meaning go to a tech park, sit in a, a lab, be closed in and not have any access to the outside world. Yeah. And, and that's what music gave to me is this kind of, it's an adventure, you know? And so, for me, in my early, my mid twenties, it was like, how do I combine these things into something that's valuable to me? I like innovation. I like music. I like sculpture. Uh, it's frustrating to play with other people, so I want to play myself. And it was just this culmination of uh, dark music, robotics, and uh, I don't know, in uh, art. That's that's really what happened. I I, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of decisions that could have been yeah. made differently to make it not happen. So how did you, you know, I could have, I could easily imagine this, the style, of, I mean, the, the con, sort of, the congregation of sort of traits that your music has, both in the terms of, you know, the robotic aspect, the musical aspect, what took it in the dark direction as opposed to towards something more like, I don't know, Imogen Heap or something like that? <laughs> well, I mean, I, God, how old was I when I heard Let's see, I think I first heard Sepultura, you know, in like 91. Nice. And, then, and then I heard like the Melvin's Lysol uh, album and then uh, Godflesh, Street Cleaner. And, you know, those were all like around that time. And, you know, I grew up listening to like, I hadn't even heard Black Sabbath at that point. You know, I, I, I for some reason, the dark stuff just, just caught on with me. And it was never... Because it, oh, it's, this is like the same thing that's in my head, or the experiences that I'm having as a, you know, a child, a lonely child. No, I had a good upbringing. I grew up on a farm. I was happy. I played soccer. You know, it's like not. It was just the intensity and the emotion that you could feel in this music, and like mm -hmm. it brought me to this kind of like fantasy land of the movies that I loved. You know, the darker movies, the original Alien, and like some of the the Kubrick movies and stuff like that. And so it was kind of like it was really fun. It was like, the music was like, Oh man, this is, and so my friends and I would like play that kind of stuff in our like cure, similar to cure Fugazi kind of band in high school. Um, and I always wanted to take it darker and slower, but I could never find people that really wanted to explore the depths of like slow and dark and really exaggerate that gesture. And at some point you just kind of got to like get rid of people and just say, no, this is what I'm going to do. Totally. And, uh, it's hard. It's hard to get somebody to really follow your artistic idea, um, especially if it's kind of on the total extreme of one end. Yeah. Or even if you're just going really experimental, some guys aren't willing to do that. Maybe they just want to do that one thing, but then uh, maybe you personally want to just take it everywhere. And some people, that's just too out of left field for them. So it's like, I totally agree with the whole, sometimes you just got to take it all in your hands and just run with it because that's the only way to truly see like the artistic vision come to life. I also think going to, you know, making a decision to go back to art school at about 26 years old 
uh, gave, just gave a, it was a time when if I had just been a weekend warrior with music, you know, I, I bought like a truck at that point. I was like, okay, I'm going to buy a car so I can tour. But then I went on a few like small tours and like in the Northeast where I was living. And I started to realize that like, that's not what musicians do when they want to really get into this, or this is not what artists do. They have, you have to take that gesture itself needs to be much more extreme. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was like being a weekend warrior musician or artist is not for me. I, I need to, I need to quit what I'm doing as an engineer and go back. And, and I think being in art school and just being around other people that were fully like, yeah, some were painters, some were doing new media programming and installation and uh, just like every day, like hammering it out with these people, drinking all night, hammering it out during the day, drinking, going down to Tijuana, going to art shows up in LA. It was kind of like, okay, now I'm immersed in this world. Um, it's over. Like I'm not going back to uh, to engineering. Of course, I end up going back to engineering, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's the cutest path that we take. Yeah, well, that's kind of where the money is. So uh, you know, I went back and took a job in a much more pleasurable environment. How do you enjoy guess- doing that and the music? Is that something that you would love to just eventually just do the music full time, or do you really love sort of like because you're you do microscopy, right? I do microscopy. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a microscopist, I guess you would say, but the, I work for a bunch of biologists and physicists who, who basically that's their whole life. And I am kind of an enabler and redesigning some of the components on these really high end microscopes. Um, I like it a lot. The people that I work with are brilliant. These guys give me, have given me the freedom to, to tour. Their, their their understanding of that we kind of established that pretty early on. That's awesome. It's a, you know it's not. I think because of that relationship, there's a there's less money. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't follow them. If I if there's many companies I could go work for, um, if I wanted to cash in on that, but it's. Uh, but you would you would lack the freedom. I lack freedom, but also you know, I have to say it's the science that we're involved that I really, you know, I'm fully behind. You know, when we're researching Alzheimer's or getting papers in nature and science and microscopy today and all these things. It feels like you're doing something that is outside of financial gain. You know, you're doing science for science sake. Yeah. I mean, with real world impacts on future health of people. Yeah, exactly. It feels, you know, even though some of this stuff is, is far away, and uh, I wouldn't say the people that work in this world are necessarily happier than the ones that work at that cash in and go work for an industry. I mean, probably sadder in a certain sense. They're really isolated. You know, yeah. these guys are 100 percent like um, committed to their science. And sometimes that's to the detriment of, of family and like personal mental health. Um, but mm-hmm. but they're passionate about it. You know, they're not doing it for money. So what are your lyrics about? Man, my lyrics are sometimes I have to reflect after the fact um, because when I'm actually writing them, uh, they're a bit ambiguous. And, um, but I mean, which my lyrics are all over the fucking place. <laughs> On the new album, I've got uh, like the song Night Terror that I just released was basically a. Um, I actually have to used to have night terrors as a kid, and I think some of those elements that are in those night terrors kind of have stayed with me a little bit. And I sort of tried to find a way where that chaos that exists within those sort of dreams where you're actually awake, which is what I would say a night terror is. It's like a nightmare, but you're actually awake. You you remember everything, like sleep paralysis. It's sleep paralysis, but you're actually walking around. Like I'd walk into my parents' room oh, okay. and we would like talk about it. And I think some of that uh, that feeling that I would have would comes back to me at times when I'm actually conscious. Like it's almost like an extreme anxiety when I'm under extreme pressure. I feel that exact 
that sense comes to me. And, and, and also, so I try to like, I would say even the whole album is, is some of that extreme anxiety mixed with the pressures of like the bullshit that we're having to deal with right now every day. Every day you wake up and you look at the news and, uh, and I'm sure people have been saying this all through time, but you have to. No, it's it's it. Society is essentially collapsing right now. We're watching it's a it. very unique, like kind of nationalist plus environmental disasters are imminent, and and so that it's a lot of stress. And I think yeah. like Beastland is in many ways just about this kind of just uh, primal sort of rage, rage, and Not also rage. yeah, like chaos and also severe confusion and so there's kind of a lot of like diarrhea of the mouth coming out of this album of like some nonsensical um so it's more fugue state sort of expression than it's trying to like uh tell a story exactly yeah there's one track pharmacide the first track which i guess is like directed at a certain beast that i like um which would basically just be industry of of um, uh, capitalism in, in terms of like ph- pharmaceutical industry or like telecom and kind of like as a entity that's taking advantage of weaker subjects. And so like, that's kind of like where I, where I tried to take Beastland is every song was going to be focused on kind of one of these aspects. I didn't really follow that maybe as much as I originally planned, but, uh, that's kind of where I was trying to take it. When you, uh, you, you have a really unique microphone that you sing into. Is, is that generally what you use to record your vocals? Or no. you, is it mainly a live tool? I used to use it. I would say up through the Ursus Americanus album, which would, so pretty much, actually the only, that's the only album that I really used it 100%. And you can hear it because the preamps that I built for each mic kind of weren't built properly so they like buzz and stuff which i i find to be nice yeah, that's cool you know it doesn't yeah it just kind of has this natural hiss to it um but no i i basically got to the point where i was like i can run it through the same effects and use a nice you know condenser mic or whatever and it'll sound the same mm-hmm. um but like there are certain songs like on terror bird or on lonely or those older songs where i was really using each of the mics as a MIDI controller and as a, a different effect on a mic. And so I would cycle through the different mics. Um, now I just, you know, uh, it's like, okay, I'll put a really delayed effect on the first mic. And then the, the, the fourth mic will have like my main forceful, slightly gained, slightly doubled. And then the two mics in the middle might have like uh, something else on them. So do you just kind of move your mouth around around this? Because the mic is kind of like a C shape or like kind of a, a, a parenthesis bracket kind of thing. Exactly. There's there's actually eight mics on it, but uh, I don't use the bottom four because I found that it's like, for whatever reason, not, form four is the right number. <laughs> um, for a given what's in my head, that's all I need. So actually, if I could just cut the bottom off of it, I would, but um, that's the way it is for now. But yeah, it's there's I can feel like the... There's holes on the other side. I can feel them, so I know without even having to look. I know where each mic is. I can feel it. So there's certain parts of the song where you want to really like drawn out, high delay, high reverb, background drone, and then you can do that. And it'll kind of hold out, and then you can go back to the main mic and do the main vocals. It's different in your execution, but like it reminded me the way that you can kind of go between vocal sort of. Forms. I mean, I guess it's something that people have been doing in industrial for a while, but to to use different types of distortion and effects and and move between that and clean um, is kind of new. It's sort of reminded me more like Tomahawk in a sense. Right, Mike Patton for sure. Yeah. Yep, I would say he's a he's an influence for sure. You know Absolutely. those guys. Yeah, and uh, King Buzzo and. Um, you know, just the, the, some of the creativity that those guys um, had and just the, their fearlessness of just being a little bit weird in that world, um, 100%. I actually got to meet him briefly uh, at a show in, in Tucson. 
Um, we didn't get to talk for very long. I wanted to talk to him a lot more, but it was just it was a busy, busy night. Yeah. Was it a show that you guys played, or did he come out? Or it was a Dead Cross show, and I was opening for them. Oh, okay. uh, the guy Justin Pearson and Michael Crane, who were in that band, are for Retox, San Diego band, and also the Locust. Uh, Justin Pearson is in, so I've known him for a while. So we stay in touch. Oh, that's cool. Tell me about the the throat. Is that a microphone that you wear around your throat? Or what is that yeah. sort of strap thing? So that's another, it's an idea I had a long time ago to basically, uh, I have a lot of these kind of gestures. I call them gestures because they start out as kind of a much more performance art-based design, like, um, which maybe someday in my life, I'll, you know, I'll be making these things. And like the masks, for example, were very much a, uh, a they, they were basically an art project. Like the masks are not something that I really take on tour with me because they're much more supposed to be um, acoustic um, voice modulation devices. You know, they're robotic, but they modulate my voice um, kind of acoustically. So it's not really intended to be used in a big PA. It's like good for like a, you're in a gallery and you can modulate your voice with this robotic air actuated thing. And so this was kind of another version of that where I would I wanted to put different microphones on different parts of my body. And so that as I'm screaming, I could mute and unmute different microphones and pick up the location of what that mic would sound like, say, right on my lung cavity or right on the side of my throat. Or what would it sound like if it were put on my skull? You know, like so it's like reverberating through the bone or whatever. I was curious about that. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I found out that those all sounded the same. The only ones, the only thing you could really do is put it right on your throat cavity. That would really have the effect that I wanted. It's more of a vibrational so, kind of thing. Yeah. So I put four put four mics on, right on my trachea, and I thought four because I was thinking like maybe if I like delayed these each a little bit, I could like have this kind of stereo. Um, effect and I was like well you could do two but then you could do four and it would even be gnarlier mm-hmm. but uh, it probably only needed one but I'll, I basically still use four and I put a different effect on each one and I run them through different filters so I can get one is just 100% low end but you really do pick up this kind of low guttural like almost like two and throat singing or something yeah. um, I can rumble the PA it almost sounds like a like a Moog synthesizer, really low end Moog. When I really rumble it, I was going to say that there's um, if you're listening to the you know a lot of things you think are guitar or synthesizer, you you realize oh that's voice, like the, the, the yeah. way that you you texture the voice and use it more in a sort of noise source or instrumental way, but without singing per se. You're not really you know at least when you know. Are you singing notes to get the tones you want, or are you modulating the sound and doing more growling? Oh, no, I'm singing. I'm making the, uh, at least with the throat mic, it's all, I'm hitting those notes with my voice. So I'm kind of humming into it. Or uh, now I'm, you know, sometimes I'll, I can mute and unmute the different um, effects. So one of them's just kind of crackly, or one of them's. Uh, yeah, the, the times I've seen you live, I was, I remember the, my first thought, I was like, I was like, I wonder what he's doing. Cause I, I would see your face look like the, it was like, you're putting a lot of pressure on it. Like almost like if you were, <laughs> almost like if you're screaming, but, but with your mouth closed and then all of a sudden I just hear this, like, I'm like, where is that coming from? And then you just start like cranking on all these levers. And then I was just like blown away. It's just like where all these different sounds are coming from is just pretty wild. Yeah, and I usually like to start the set with the throw mic because it kind of increases the intensity a little bit before it just becomes like a, a lot of rhythms and beats. Yeah. But, you know, all these things I'm kind of redesigning because there's, I mean, they all kind of fall apart over time and touring. And at the end of the show, you throw it in a box. And so yeah. I think the new setup is has been a, like mainly about like making something that's very robust lightweight and can handle on and off stage quickly um i throat mic included mm-hmm. good connect good connectors uh 
designed to fit in Pelican Air cases and just uh, trying to make my setup like more comfortable for me throughout a whole tour. Would you would you ever look into making and selling them? Well, it's funny you say that because I've uh, I've definitely thought about that like endlessly, uh, and I have a few people right now that I'm working with to. So basically, the new devices that I just made um, are essentially, I would say, prototypes for that. Um, they're they're smaller. They're 19 inch rack mount devices. And we're kind of like in the early stages of planning some of that. Maybe I don't know. It's a lot of work. It's it's a, my my goal is to be a musician, and that's proven to be a huge undertaking to have a successful like music project. That um, you'd have to be ready to switch gears for a while. Yeah. No. I, I I'm I 100% never want to. This is like my main thing, and so to to start to start a company on top of this job and and basically author and punishers become like half of my time i can't i don't want to take away from that in any way Mm -hmm. if i look back when i'm 70 and i look back and say i would much much rather say i had a music project that i'm proud of rather than oh i started a company yeah it's just i don't know we got enough fucking people trying to make money out there i think we need more artists yeah yeah, that's awesome. Um, no disrespect to uh, anyone starting a music company because it's it's definitely a it's a different it's a different craft. I guess it depends on how you go about it uh, and why you go about it um, and what yeah. you're trying to build. Then just that you're you you kind of shift gears to build something. In a, in a sense, I mean, making music is making something. It's it is a tangible art form because like any other thing that you can experience, it is a visceral experience. I, I find that I, if we do this, and probably in the next six months or so, I, I have a little break in January, February, where I would have a chance to kind of get this going. But, uh, sorry, my dog just came in. Hi, Uli. <laughs> uh, if we do do it, I think it'll be in, in a large part because I'm annoyed with the way that um, people have not had not really made electronic instruments that are um, that are interactive or, or or basically that are instruments. We've we spent so much time lately on modular synthesizers and it's amazing like i'm so psyched the way the direction that's going and now like the, with the way that they're now working with software and more i think people are a little less like um cynic or negative about software you know i think after the whole dubstep boom and skrillex mm-hmm. and all this shit everyone was like oh no we need to go in the other direction mm-hmm. we need to be focused we don't need dudes up on stage doing nothing in front of a laptop we need interaction we need synths we need hardware we need analog so everyone went crazy in that direction you got all the analog hipsters with their modular synth (laughs) and and that's totally cool and and it's annoying because they only think that's the only way to make good music even though most of it sounds like bleep bloops Mm -hmm. but and software i still think is the best uh solution but a mixture of the two but what we don't have is good controllers we still have I mean, we've got that little rubber thing with the keys, and that's a cool instrument. You got the there's another one now that almost looks like a joystick that's kind of rubbery that you kind of move around. Um, but for me, it's like okay, what that people like a guitar because you're up on stage and they can see everything you're doing, and you can pound the shit out of it. You can pound the shit out of it, and so I'm like, no one is doing this. There's still nobody doing this, and I've been doing this since 2006 or whatever, and I know how to do it. And I find these instruments to be, they're made out of fucking industrial components that feel good. They're heavy. If I do it, it's because I think that the industry needs it. Um, and I think I can uh, meaningfully add to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, yeah, but I mean, that's the thing is we haven't really had, you know, there are hybrid acoustic instruments that are coming out, but like, 
there have always been a dearth of sort of options for vocalists. And a lot of what you got is really kind of steered toward using vocals as a as a broader instrument, not just yep. as a, as a as a singing instrument, uh, but as a percuss. Not just because I mean I guess that's the thing is there. I feel like there is that need for more ways of expressing music than just various versions of a keyboard or a drum trigger. Um, or a synthesizer that you can, you know, swap patch cables in. I mean, yep. without getting into like kind of cheesy sort of kids toy esque hardware that that you kind of do still see a lot of now and then. You'll see like weird arts and craftsy type thing, and sometimes people will circuit bend those. But like you said, there's nothing that's sort of built to take it, right? That, you know, that you could really get serious with musically. Yeah, that's. I mean, and stuff that is. Uh... I'm psyched. I mean, the, the modular synth thing is, is great, and I and, and a lot of my friends and God, I mean, I, I probably every electronic DJ from the 2000s has now gone modular because or gone electron or gone whatever to basically. Um, I don't blame them. I mean, it's cool, but I still think there's like the turntable was an amazing interface, and. Uh, that's even got smaller and kind of like less interesting mm-hmm. with the CDGJ. And I think it's like, I think there's just so much room for it. I don't know. We'll see. Um, we'll see what happens. I, I, I've got a, I actually was just having dinner last night with an old friend who's a product design engineer. So we're, um, and then I've got one of these modular guys who's, who's interested. We're just, it's more just like finding the time and the money um, to basically start it up. Now, I guess that's the that's the challenge with hardware is that it it's you know software you really all you need is a computer yeah and with hardware you've got a you've got to line up manufacturing yep which I think adds a whole other dimension yeah you need some startup money I've spent all my own money on this stuff but I'm kind of like if this becomes a company I'm not going to use my own money yeah <laughs> well because you don't want it to to sort of steer you away from where you're going. Yeah, well, this means bringing in other people where I could just be creative uh, lead and just get other people to kind of handle the um, the other components. And we might end up making a device, for example, that has a has its own synth components in it. So it's kind of its own standalone device that would have a sound that would be my sound um, that I like to use. Um, but that's difficult. You know, you gotta actually design a synth. Um, maybe it would be like a collaboration with a synth company or something. Yeah. But I went to Moogfest this year, and I went to their like market um, that they had all these, you know, startup companies and stuff. It was pretty. It was pretty uh, overwhelming. <laughs> There's so many companies. Yeah, that's a. That's it, it's interesting when you see sort of this an explosion of sort of choices and companies out there. And you're sort of looking for what's going to kind of cut through and sort of establish itself as a new sort of direction. And right now it seems like it's all very nebulous, which direction music technology is going to go. Well, yeah, I think there's something really attractive to synth nerds about these little modules and being able to create it from scratch. But I also feel like there's, for the for the performer, I think that works really well for some people that are kind of like um, the studio-based bedroom kind of musicians who want to set up a, a home studio. But I'm not sure it's the best decision for people that are playing live music. And you know, it's not. It doesn't. It doesn't appeal to the person who's a performer. You know, there, there are some. I think some of the Moog stuff because it has keys on it and they're these like standalone devices i think that is a little bit more accessible so i still think that there's a um you know we're still kind of basically with midi land performing live you're still kind of stuck with a keyboard or a or a a grid of pads and knobs so i think there's an opening i mean we i think if i made a hundred of one of my devices i think we'd probably sell them yeah but would it would no it uh, would it catch on? You know, so that's probably what we're looking to do is borrow some money from somebody, make a hundred, and then see how it does. Go yeah. from there. I mean, I think the visual aesthetic will probably have a huge impact on 
on how well it does because if it feels like it's got sort of a an identity right off the bat that I think will usually click with people. If it doesn't yeah. feel like sort of a, a baby step in a direction, but rather feels like it's designed for its purpose and it's sort of there and real. Yeah. I mean, you just keep them simple. I, I found, I know what works for me with these devices. I know it doesn't work. And I think to take these things to, to a place where they're um, something that's commercially viable those little idiosyncrasies that, that are that I deal with, that those little issues need to be fixed because mm-hmm. people aren't going to want to deal with that crap. Yeah, no, they're going to want plug and play. They want to plug and play, or they're going to yeah, this bearing is you know dirty. I'm like, well, clean it. You know, <laughs> like there's things like that that are like the bearings get dirty. You know, oh, you need to grease it. Oh, I used the wrong grease. So you have to, oh, there's a fucking spec for a ball bearing on a shaft where you have to like tell them what type of grease to use and then. If they use the wrong grease, they're going to be like, I want my money back. And you're going to be like, oh, my God, these people are retarded. I can't deal with this. <laughs> yeah. so. I definitely feel like there's people out there who like to get their hands dirty. The more the guys who like to you know, take things apart and putting them back together. So I think there's definitely people out there looking for something like this. Kind of like yourself, like you felt like there was something missing, something that you can use to sort of you know, work on your art. So I definitely think that there's people out there who would be into something like this. Yeah, get rid of the plastic. Um, you know that will be one of the things we will try to not have uh, any plastic. Um, try to keep them all metal. You can take it apart like you can your AR-15. So it'll be very popular in America. <laughs> what are what are some of the uh, some of the devices that you're thinking about doing? Because I know you have like the arm controller that is sort of like a beat machine that you know you can do like the kick and snare and. Uh, I noticed you have the the finger triggers too. What are some of the sounds that those triggers actually control? Because I was when I watch you play, I, I'll notice you're sort of doing all these different movements. Um, is that all basically just drum sounds, or it's all drum sounds? But it could be anything you want. I mean, there's it's a linear encoder. It's it's got eight buttons. It's programmed by an Arduino. I mean, you can program it however you want. I basically just do different combinations of buttons will trigger different uh, at different positions along the length will we'll trigger different um, drum sounds. So different samples, you can use the length as you to map to a knob or a filter. So I've tried all sorts of different stuff. What's What plays the sample? Uh, Ableton. Ableton. But I also, when I wrote this album, I just hooked it up to an analog rhythm uh, electron analog rhythm so I would basically just map the buttons to different um, analog rhythm pads or MPC pads so you can play you can play the samples with whatever you want go into a computer or you could go into uh, a synthesizer or, you, or whatever or you could go and see out CV into a, a modular rack um, so you can do all three of those USB MIDI or um, CV it's pretty sweet yeah, there's just, there's just, I don't know. It's just basically like, it's just a controller, just like any other, any other knob or button box. Huh. We'd have to send you a load of samples, a lot of content, see if you have any, can have any fun with it. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm open to that. I, I think it would be, uh, I'm always open to playing around with different stuff. Yeah. We've got a lot of ordinary, you know, like standard classical instruments, but we got a lot of weird stuff too that you might have fun with. Yeah, that would be cool. I'm, I'm like, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes like on the new album. Actually, I used a um, an old Alesis drum machine that I'm running through some newer um, effects, and that was really cool because it had had this old like '90s era digital sound that kind of broke up nice under distortion. So like, just finding these like weird avenues to, to get new sounds. Um, sometimes it's Going backwards is better. Yeah. The leases especially is funny because in the 90s, uh, they had some really cool effects hardware. Yeah. Uh, like the wedge that you can't even get anymore because they, I mean, they've, they've, they've gone way downhill into kind of a consumer yeah. range. But there was some, there were some, actually some vision in the, the sound. I mean, like they were onto something and unfortunately kind of, it seemed like they got off track. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. It's, 
that, that happens and that's a concern when you're a company like that. You don't want it, to, it's almost like, it, I was thinking about with these devices, like, oh, do you want to make it, um, do you want to make it more accessible so people can afford it? Or do you want to make it really expensive and super high end so that like people really value it, you know? Uh, th- there's like two different paths you could take there. Yeah, more of a boutique approach, um, sort of. Yeah, boutique approach. It doesn't mean that you. I mean, that's how I build my stuff. Um, uh, the only reason I've gone lighter is because of weight for airplanes. Um, otherwise, I would probably make everything out of like stainless steel and really use the highest quality components I possibly can. But then I won't be able to travel anywhere. So. Yeah. You know, aluminum and water jet cutting has has been something I've been doing more lately because it's it's faster to prototype and it's lighter and all this kind of shit. How long did it actually take when you were prototyping everything in the beginning as far as the different uh, instruments that you were building? Because when I was watching some of the videos where you were talking about the process, I was just thinking, like, how many times, I wonder, did he have to build these different prototypes before you actually found sort of what worked? Uh, I would say it took me about, you know, for for example, the new drum controller that I made, it probably took me four or five months to really kind of build it completely. Um, but the, you know, and then after that, it's, oh, I, I, I totally misdesigned that whole entire, uh, like, the stylus that I built or I used the wrong controller or the, the box is not big enough for the electronics because I had to change it. So that really is a another another few months, and now I took it on tour and I broke four parts of it. So now I got to redesign that. Um, I don't know, man. It's like it's like endless years to yeah. to really get the thing, and then and then you're just like, well, I'll just deal with that, and I'll. But as a product, man, it would just be endless revisions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a they're they're kind of like. They're kind of beasts. Yeah. I mean, some of the simpler ones, even even like the knob box that I just built, it's to get the bearings and the shafts to spin properly and get the machining on the lathe to be to be perfect is like that's harder harder than it sounds. Yeah. Um. So. So you recently uh, you recently signed with Relapse. Uh, before that, yeah. you were on Housecore Records. Um, what made you decide to change labels? Uh, I just had finished with with Housecore and had a good run with them and had a good uh, a good album. I was proud mm-hmm. of it. Did some tours with them and then just basically uh, wanted a little bit wider audience. And I started looking um, at some some labels that are out there and I sent it around various places. Had some conversations and then uh, I knew the Relapse people through this old label I was on called. Um, Seventh Rule, which was a friend up in Portland, mm-hmm. this guy Scott Flaster, he boutique doom metal label. Uh, that guy helped me immensely. I mean, even after I had left his label for Housecore, he he was like my main. He almost was like my manager. He was just helping me find, and he actually connected me with Relapse up in Portland because they have their kind of like connections there and in Philly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we just talked to them, and, and Relapse jumped on it right away. They were like totally into it had been fans before and so that's cool. that for that for me was big just because i think finding audience size for me was the main thing um just needed a have distribution and the and uh, a team of people working on it it's tough with smaller labels yeah. um like seventh rule and like uh, house core when there's basically like three people working at the label, you know, and then, but yeah, like a lot of bands try to spread their energy between. Yeah, a lot of bands spread their energy between. You know, it, it, it's tough also when you have a label that's kind of like a a project of a a person like Phil Anselmo yeah. or you know, I, I know there's a lot of labels like this that people that have been successful will start a label and it's amazing they put all their money into it um, just because they love the music, but. At the end of the day, that doesn't necessarily translate to the widest uh, spread of your music, and and you know that's I I have no complaints. It was just I was ready to to step it up. I think what's fascinating about the the change. I mean, like there there was a there was a, a thought that labels, in a sense, would be going away, but 
Be- because the ability to record at home uh, makes, you know, it- it's a great equalizer. You can produce music that is as, uh, like, production-wise, completely on par with anything that any major label artist can put out. There's not a distinction in terms of quality anymore between something you could do in your bedroom and something you could do at the most expensive studio in the world. But there is still a very important piece, and that's communicating to an audience, creating the audience, building it, spreading it, so that people who are sort of fertile, who are, you know, ground for the, for the style, who want that kind of music, can find yeah. it. You know, if you yeah. don't know what's out there, because there's a sea of it, a sea of different stuff, and you and you know that all you can really do is bounce from artist to artist. That's like you know connected, like maybe on the same label or. Um, touring together or you just hear by word of mouth. I mean, the industrial scene, it was all basically word of mouth plus a couple of zines back in the, you know, 80s, 90s and early 2000s. And yeah, um, it was really sort of difficult to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. And I think a label actually has an important place in the music industry again, or has, has, has had that if they approach it the right way, which is not as, you know, not looking at the artist as simply a resource to extract yeah and you know and looking at the artist and the label as a partnership to help bring the artist to its market yeah but also but also i think for the artist too not looking at a label and expecting them to do everything i think a lot of times people are like oh we got signed that's it when it's like you still have to work just as hard on you know putting your stuff out there and creating good content you know because i think uh for my experience when it comes to labels one of the big benefactors of it is the distribution, you know, because a lot of times people don't have the time or resources to uh, put their music out there. They don't know how. I mean, there's a lot of services out there that kind of help. But I think that's one of the things with a good label is just being able to, you know, get your stuff out there in stores or, you know, different places like that or, you know, or also to helping with tour, you know, with like touring. Sometimes labels can can get you on tours that maybe uh, if, if let's say you're not on a like a booking agent or something. Sometimes like, uh, you know, labels can help out with that. So they do have their, their place, but at the same time, I think we live in a place or in a time where I think you can do it yourself. You just have to be really savvy when it comes to the, you know, putting your stuff out there online. I've found that. Yeah. I I just self-released the EP last summer because it was in between labels and I had basically just signed a relapse and had already recorded the recording. And I think it was, it was the right decision to not release it with them. And they didn't want to do it because it was, it was already past the time when it would fit into their schedule. So basically just released it on my own and they helped me promote it. But the funny thing was, is like we already sold in the first week of releasing my first single back in like August 5th or whatever that was. We already sold more in like the first week on pre-orders than I sold the whole run of the Pressure Mind EP that I put. I self-released last summer. Wow. And so it was like, oh, this is why you release on a label. Because I thought that, that was fine. Like I made my money back very quickly on that EP. I spent, I think I spent $2,800 to basically get the records printed, the vinyl printed. And uh, I borrowed the money from a friend, paid him back very quickly. That was great. But, you know, I sell those trickle out, you know, on my band camp and I take them on tour with me and I made 500. I'll sell them. But it's like that's 500 is is, uh, that's not doing that well if that's what you're selling on an album for 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 hard for for hard copies. You know, you got to there's just no comparison, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, the connections that relapse have the reputation you know, it's it. The label's been around a long time, so I think like it's people flow in and out of these kind of situations. And I think by signing some some younger, more electronic bands, they've changed their image a little bit with like Survive and um, uh, Nothing and some other bands that are like a little bit outside of the death metal realm. And and that was interesting, um, attractive to me. But uh, yeah, man, I, I have a lot of friends who will do self releases, and it's a, it's a grind. And I, I always people are anxious, you know they they've already recorded it, and there's a bit of naivety to, to think that, 
well, let's say it's July, you just finished your album and you're in your mind as a musician, you want that album to come out like mm-hmm. now because you mm-hmm. just made it. But that's not the way it works. You know, like if you want to get that in magazines, then you basically got to like, I know. Yeah. Okay. Beyonce and Rihanna will just surprise drop an album on us. Well, they don't need any promotion. They're already huge. They've got millions of followers. Yeah. So I try to tell my friends, do not self-release. Take the time, look for a label. But then they're like, yeah, but... And then by the time October rolls around, their interest in music is, oh, I don't like my album anymore. Like There's <laughs> this kind of like... There's this kind of like short-sightedness that... I mean, I've been this way. Back when I was first releasing stuff, you can... You, it's just not the way to do things. You really have to like take the time, tour on that album, have a demo that you take with you. Just wait until you can find somebody. Uh, I don't know. I have a lot of friends who kind of ask me like, hey, you take me on tour or like, where can we, uh, how can I get my music out of San Diego? And there's no other simple way than just get on the road, book your tour. Oh, but I need a booking agent. Well, you're not going to have a booking agent. You need to just write to promoters and go, yep. go to Portland and play some hall with some punk bands and then meet people at the show. And then the next month when you can go up there, you can like make connections. And don't expect that fans are just going to fall in love with you by the millions without being convinced. Right. By having some, like some social media posts that you do. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we posted once on Facebook and they just expect, you know, 100 people to be at their show. And it's like, no, that's not how it works, man. You got to get out there. You got to get out there. And that's not to say that, like, I mean, I, I think, man, I'm very frustrated with, like, shows that are about, like, music, like, whatever, the voice and this kind of shit. Because it basically gives people, like, a false hope of becoming a Instagram or, like, a social media star. And, and when you play the kind of music that we play, especially in, like, darker underground world, like, that's not the same thing. You need to go out and you need to get involved with shows and, and do touring. It's sacrifice. Uh-huh. And that's, there's no other there's no other way to do it. I mean, fuck man. It took it took me probably seven years of of doing that constantly, you know, just like I don't know, maybe three tours, four tours a year, hopping in the van and just struggling with 15 people. Yeah. And there's still shows in Europe where there's 10 to 15 people. So <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. Uh, it's just kind of like the nature of the beast, especially in the more like, uh, like I, like I come from more like the metal and death metal and the, our first tour we ever did, there'd be like five, 10 people. And it's just kind of like, but when it's, yes, but when it's exactly. like, when it's in the early days or like your first tour, you don't really care. You're just like, this is awesome. We're, we're doing it, you know, but drink tickets. Yeah. yeah we yeah, got five exactly. drink tickets, man. This is the greatest show ever. And it's, but <laughs> But it's kind of like you need to do that. And it's almost like you, you like you said, you got to do the work. You got to love it, too. I mean, that's just the fact that you've made that jump is is huge. And, you know, putting a tour poster online where it has 20 dates listed on it, whether those dates are at venues that anyone's ever heard of, that is a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, like getting that shit out there to say, hey, I've committed to this. Just doing that, I don't care what the shows are like. If you're doing that a few times a year, you are going to network and meet people and be noticed. And unfortunately, that means that you're, you know, you're, you've got to have a different job than probably what most people are, are doing. Yeah. Although now, I mean, with the way that the economy is kind of unraveling, yeah, uh, a lot more people are doing kind of gig style jobs. They're not able to, you know, they're stringing together multiple jobs. So yeah. sometimes they sort of, there maybe is that space in their life for it. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just I hope uh, yeah, maybe maybe the, the silver lining of this whole thing is that we'll start to see um, I don't know more more politically and uh, socially motivated music um, protest music would be really good to see again. Yeah, it's fucking time. Yeah, it's like a, yeah. I don't know if you listen to Napalm Death, but uh, I actually I just saw them recently, and one of the things I love about them is is just uh, the way Barney talks. Is like you see their music, it's so extreme. And so there's so much energy, but then when you hear him talk, he's just like, you could tell he's an intelligent dude and he, he has his finger on what's going on and he's just, you know, most people wouldn't expect that kind of actual thought put into, you know, grindcore, but it's just, it's really cool to see that there are some bands who are doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like listening to bands like His Heroes Gone and Fugazi and Helmet and, uh, you know, growing up in the nineties, this is what 
that's what music was to me was it was very intelligent that's people that i hung out with were were very politically conscious it was the straight edge um vegan kind of era and uh, i i really liked that it's not that i was straight edge or vegan but i liked the uh it was socially conscious people were thinking about their actions it's not just that yep. whole metal aesthetic that I think a lot of people think like, oh, let's just get drunk and mosh. Like there's actually people there that when you sit down and talk with them, you're like, wow, these, these guys got a brain. Exactly. They're just they're just got a little bit more energy, testosterone going or something. Yeah. After they mosh, <laughs> then they're all talking about all these, you know, thought provoking topics. You're like, whoa, I didn't expect that. Yeah, I think we need that again. And I think it's starting to creep its way back in. You know, yeah. when hardcore kind of like went metalcore in like the early 2000s and then that kind of died out in i don't know 2008 or i can't really remember and now it's kind of creeping back in again but with maybe a different feel or maybe i've got these maybe it's just because i'm 40 now that i'm like miss uh i don't know what really really where it's going but i'm seeing a lot more politically motivated stuff yeah i think there there was like a, a decade after the 90s where there was sort of this bread and circuses sort of cultural nullification that went on you know with the rise of of a new kind of entertainment that turned everything into this flat mush there wasn't really any value between sort of the meaning of the music versus its popularity right it just you know it was like it's almost like culture tried to grab all of itself package it into products and and sort of spread it out there's not really you know there became like this lack of of creative direction or purpose in a lot of art yeah, taking some taking the gesture too far, putting taking hardcore, and, and it became, you know, gent, just <laughs> over the top. Dubstep did the yeah. same thing. Like I love, I love, love dubstep, and it comes through in everything that I do. But it was like that went to a place that no one wanted to be involved with it anymore. Sort of technical for its own sake. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, and now I think that people have, like, given up on that. It's like, oh, now I can listen to this again. No one even, uh, you know, no one will be bothered. Um, but, like, you know, the, the kind of UK dubstep yeah. and, like, the earlier dub, drum and bass. I, I love that stuff. And, and mm. all those all those genres kind of went too far. Yeah. So. Yeah, I have a friend of mine I used to be, I used to play in a band with, and, um, and he was all in the drum, uh, you know, dubstep, drum and bass, but like you said, the UK stuff. And a lot of his friends hated it. And then Skrillex came out, and then all of a sudden, everyone loved it. And he was just like, "Dude, like, what is this? Like, you guys were all, you know, hating on it before, but now it's like it takes someone to kind of put it in that more of a like a pop spotlight or something. And then it just kind of turns yes. into the next trend. When you know, it's kind of like even metal too, like death metal, like." Uh, I used to be in high school, people who hated Cannibal Corpse, and then Between the Bear to Me came out, and then everyone was like, "Like, oh yeah, now this is cool." When everyone hated that kind of vocal style, it's just it's crazy how that how that works out. Yeah, it was, it was more of a style thing than it was a um, about the music. Yeah. Um, I, it's industrial, hundred percent. I mean, I I probably complained about the industrial scene in every podcast I've ever <laughs> been on um, because I just find the whole thing to be so aesthetically based um which has probably worked in my favor to a certain extent so i probably shouldn't complain about it too much but uh well it's performative in a way rather than the sort of about something yeah it was rather than being about something it was all it it it, it curdled into this fashion yeah. movement exactly and then the whole like weird can like the, the sort of raver goth thing kind of took off red thread in your hair yeah, and then it just, well, and it just went off in a random direction, and the music went sort of straight synth pop. And there were some there were some good moments there. I mean, like I, you know, I could get it up Pop Tigma Berserk and, and VNB Nation things like that. There was, but it 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 became so much more about the style and the fashion, at least in the scene, than it it was about sort of any sort of musical exploration or expression at a point. Yep. Yeah, I, I I go to these festivals a lot now, and I'm just like, what the hell is going on here? But uh, whatever, I'm I'm still most comfortable in my, you know, like Roadburn. I played a couple of years ago, and that was just, you know, that was the best. It was just like a bunch of people that I could just hang out with endlessly. I felt at home in that world. Um, slow, beer drinking, doom metal. That's where I'm at. 
Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. It was really cool, man. Yeah. Good to uh, meet you guys, and uh, we'll keep in touch. All right. Take it easy, man. All right. See you. Bye. Bye. So I want to thank you guys for tuning into the Sound Iron Podcast with Author and Punisher. He's definitely one of the most innovative people out there in the scene right now. So if you want to find some more information on him and his instruments, make sure to go to tristanshone.com. And if you like these podcasts, make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review, and let us know what you guys think. So thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.